Have you ever given thought to what it must have been like to be around Jesus, to physically be around Jesus as his disciples and followers and the crowds were, what he must have been like, his personality, his laugh, his voice, the way he interacted with people, his mannerisms, his quirks. I mean, he would have had all of those things because, of course, he was human. What it must have been like to be around Jesus, to be in his presence. I often wonder if I'd had the opportunity to do that making the assumption that I believed what he taught about himself, and that I, that I believed and had faith that he was fully, completely the Son of God, I would have had a lot of questions for him. Maybe you would have too. You ever think about the questions that you might like to ask Jesus? Now, certainly you can't go back to when he was, but someday we will be in his presence in some form, and if we have the opportunity, if he's patient with us for a, endure a, you know, a couple of billion years of questions, people just waiting in line, and you have the opportunity to ask him a question, what might you ask? This happened in Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be tonight as we <clears throat> go forward in our series called God's Amazing Grace, where we look at people and their unique situation or story, their impact and interaction with the living grace. Luke chapter 10, a lawyer goes to see a rabbi, and that's not a joke. That really did happen. A lawyer went to see a rabbi, and he asked a great question, a question that I think if you were going to sort of have to narrow down your questions, maybe you could only ask one question Surely that question that he asked would be among the top ones to ask. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is a good one. However, it's the answer that creates sort of a problem. If you really stop to think about it, well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Following along, I hope you'll uh, follow along and listen to me as I read from Luke chapter 10, the rest of the answer. What is written in the law, he said, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Uh, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, uh, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. <clears throat> then he put the man on his own donkey, 
took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense which you may have. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, this whole story, and, and I've heard this sermon, this story made into sermons and lessons on how we need to do good and how we need to give and how we need to engage in our world and be the type of people who care for other people. And those things are true, but I don't think that's the point of the story. Remember, the story is an answer to a question that the lawyer asks the rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting because there are these two ideas that I must do something to inherit something. You see, if you're familiar with an inheritance, an inheritance is not something that you earn. It's something that you get just by being who you are, by being your family. You receive an inheritance. It's not something you earn. But the lawyer asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When we think about this, this interaction between the lawyer and the rabbi and the story that follows, we learn some interesting things. Number, four, number one, <clears throat> the law has an immense standard. <clears throat> Our understanding of what holiness is and righteousness is and legal perfection as God defines it, good as God defines it, is clearly penned out from Genesis to Malachi. By some count, over 611 commands. The expert in the law was certainly familiar with the law, no doubt had memorized it, and was familiar with the intricacy and the nuances and the debates concerning what the law meant. All of these 600 commands, what was the purpose? What was the meaning? And Jesus said to him, how do you read it? And he came to the right conclusion, 100%. If he were taking a test over the law, given by the one who wrote the law, that's a pretty good, pretty good score. You are correct. You have read correctly. The first commandment is the most important, and the scribe naturally would have known this. We're going to look at some Old Testament commands. I know a, a Sunday night crowd can handle this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. I'm going to turn there because I don't have it memorized, as the teacher of the law no doubt would, and as Jesus certainly would. I can't even quote it correctly. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 8.5 is way wrong. A little bit of context. We know Deuteronomy 6. We know the admonition for one generation to teach another. This is how it starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was... The essence of what they called the very greatest commandment of the law. All the laws pointed to this one law. 
one rule, one guiding principle of what would ensure righteousness as God defines it. Because you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Turn back to the New Testament, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. One of the teachers of the law, verse 28, came and heard them debating, noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer, asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important. Jesus himself confirmed what was commonly known. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So as, we, as I talked about this morning, I mentioned you know, the goal then, that's the number one goal, to love the Lord. The goal really is not heaven. I mean, heaven will happen if you love the Lord, but, but, loving, but heaven is sort of what the byproduct of the greatest command. So he says, uh, love, uh, this command is loving God with all you have. Loving God with all your heart, the emotion. Uh, there's debate about this, but how the Jews define the heart and so forth. But, but with the, the will, the heart, the emotion, the, the, the person, the, the soul, the mind, the intellect, and the strength with your gifts and your abilities. Love God with all you have. And the scribe understood what Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. I keep turning back to the old law because that was what he, they would have had reference to. We have the reference of both. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. <clears throat> You must be careful, must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Okay, this, Jesus is making reference that, okay, I know you know the law. He would have known that a lawyer, a teacher of the law would have known the law talked about the law, thought about the law. It was his job. That people came to him with questions about the law. Jesus was not debating whether or not he knew the law. What he tells him is exactly what the law itself says. The man who obeys them will live by them. That's interesting for us to think about. You see, especially Sunday night crowd has heard lots of sermons, no doubt, in your lifetime. And that's not really the important thing. When you stand before your Creator, His concern will not be how much you know of the law and how much you know the Scriptures and know the verses. The question will be, ah, yes, but, but did you do the verses? Did you, did you live according to the, the verses? Yes, I, I, I know that you know them, but it's the living by them which counts, which matters the most. 
here's the problem as I think about it. If the law's standard is the, the number one standard to love it, of the law, the number one standard of the law is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love him so much that you do everything he tells you to do. And we all say, yeah, mm-hmm, that, that sounds pretty good. There's just one small problem with that. And that's this. No one's ever done that. Certainly no one in this room. I know you all. Nobody. None of you. Has lived up to that standard. Only one did. His name was Jesus. And Jesus tells him. Remember what he tells him? Do this and you will live. He creates this like impossible standard for him to clear. He knew it. But he couldn't do it. All right. Well, okay. Let's let's take this. Let, let's. I mean, we're talking about grace this year, right? I mean, you, I know you, I can sense it all. You're like, we're talking about grace. Let's talk about. Let's not be legalistic about this thing, Toby. Let's not. Yes, I know that's a standard, but let's just love. Let's just love each other. Let's just love God. The problem is, is that love is even worse than than the law. By the weight of a standard. Love has an impossible standard. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 8. The second command. And and you heard me say Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. But love your neighbor... As yourself, I am the Lord. All right? Sounds good. Know that to be true. But the law said that the first command was to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we've just admitted that none of us has ever done that fully, completely. I mean, we have our good moments, you know, on Sunday between 9 and 11 a.m. I'm pretty good. On Sunday night, I'm really good. But what about the second command? Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. You think the first standard is impossible? Let's move into the second standard of impossibility. To love your neighbor as yourself, that's way hard. That's way, way hard. We'll come back to that. The, the lawyer, the teacher of the law, we're back now in Luke chapter 10. He's, he's asked questions that he already knows the answer to. Jesus has given him the answer that he knows that he knows that the lawyer knows the answer to. Somewhere in there, we got that. And so Jesus says to him, do this and live. And we think the story's over. But the teacher in the law seeming to have some ulterior motive, I can almost just imagine as Jesus starts to turn away, the disciples start to head out, and this lawyer throws down a trap question. And, and who is my neighbor? Ah, that's a tougher question. 
Hey, I love your neighbor as yourself. All right, well, that sounds good, but, but surely there's got to be some limiting parameters on that. Surely there's got to be some boundaries. I mean, it can't just apply to anyone. I mean, there are sinners and prostitutes, and in our world there are drug dealers and, and child molesters and, and all of these things. I mean, are we supposed to love everybody with that level of love, the same love that we love ourselves? There has to be. There just has to be. Some sort of limit, some sort of reasonable limit that we can apply toward which to the term neighbor. And teachers of the law and people that love to debate it and theologians of the day love to talk about, well, who really was the neighbor? I mean, obviously it wasn't the Gentile and certainly maybe it applied to women. I apologize. I mean, this was just their culture of the day. And maybe it applied to those who lived in foreign lands, but ah, no way would it apply to a Samaritan. The cultural opinion of the day was that a neighbor was someone who was righteous, like we are. Not the wicked, not the sinners, not the Gentiles, not the Samaritans. Those people were enemies of God and were not to be loved in the same way. Clearly. And how they would justify that, turn to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm chapter 139 was a psalm that they would use to justify that. And they would, they would quote this. They wouldn't even have to turn there. They would just quote it by memory. Psalm 139, 21 and 22. And people say, well, you know, God's a God of love. God, there's no way God could hate. But, but if, you, if you think that, you need to read these verses. Because these are the verses that they would quote. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. That's, I mean, clearly, I mean, surely we have to love God with everything we have. But it is in no way, no reasonable expectation that loving your neighbor means loving all people. It just means loving those who are in the right with God. Everybody else we can forget. And so, Jesus, master teacher that he is, does what he does when people try to trap him. He tells a story. And the story we know well. We've already read it, and, and no doubt you have heard it before, about this Samaritan that does something incredible. A, a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was which is about a 17-mile journey. But it wasn't the 17 miles like you and I think about 17 miles. It was 17 miles that was mostly in this direction. I mean, think stock market 2008. Okay, it was it was mostly a downward trend. It was dangerous and precarious. Uh, robbers and thieves hung out there because they knew it was dangerous and they knew that people were more susceptible, especially those who were traveling. <clears throat> and so they laid in wait. It was not a good road to take. So there's this man and he goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and sure enough on the way he's robbed. He's stripped of his valuables. He's beaten. He's left for dead. And we think the story is over. And Few characters come along that way. A priest, a Levite, and both of them have the same reaction. Now this is the same priest and the Levite that knew the law and perhaps would have known Psalm 139. But 
And, and we know that they knew that because of how they acted. They, they see the man on this side of the road, and so they go to this side. They can't be bothered with this half-dead person, and they don't even know their status before God. So clearly, they're not under any obligation to love or provide or worry about this man. They have all the reasons in the world. And they both disobey God. They both disobey the command, although they would have made an excuse, but they both disobey the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But a Samaritan, now you and I read Samaritan like, you know, uh, a Haitian, uh, so, someone, uh, an Australian. I mean, it just it, 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 there's no significance other than, okay, that person obviously from Samaria. But to them, this is a huge twist in the story. A, a Samaritan, you say? Hmm. You can kind of picture them leaning in. Samaritans were descendants of intermarriage with people who did not worship the living God. They, they had their own temple. Uh, they, they intermarried with the Assyrians when the northern kingdom was taken over. They were considered traitors. In fact, when Jesus has an interaction with a Samaritan woman, it is very clear that Jews do not associate with Samaritans from that interaction. So Jesus tells this story about the Samaritan. And admittedly, I can't immediately side with the Samaritans for all of their theology. They had a, a, a wholly separate temple. They had some pagan rituals that were mixed in with their worship. They, were, they had some things that were troublesome. That certainly would be troubling to you and I. They were considered the arch enemies of the Jews. Uh, Jews even avoided at all costs, unless they just absolutely had to, traveling through Samaria. I mean, you, I'm sure you probably had some awkward Thanksgivings and Christmases in your family and, and awkward silences and things like that. You do not know any sorts of dysfunction like the Jews and the Samaritans had, okay? And when he mentions the Samaritans, they are aghast. They're, they've almost stopped listening. In fact, so hated were the Samaritans that they considered the term, me using the term a Samaritan, would be like me saying a swear word. I mean, it was just that vile to them. In fact, in the scriptures, in John chapter 8, verse 48, I think it was the Pharisee says, Are we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I mean, that's how, they, that's how low they thought of Jesus, was that surely he had to be of the Samaritans, and surely he had to be of a demon. I mean, they kind of put demon possessions and Samaritan living on the same level. We get this? Am I clear enough? I hope I gave you enough detail for a Sunday night. Samaritan, then, vile as he was, does the impossible. Does far above what he is expected to do. He showed compassion. He bandaged the man's wounds. He took upon himself the burden. He applied the oil and the wine uh, to heal, to disinfect, to soothe. He, he took this man and he lifted him of his own strength and he put him on his own donk, beast, but probably likely a donkey of some sort. He brought him to an inn. He, he pays, he, he gives the innkeep uh, two silver coins. And to give you some idea, in doing a little bit of research for the sermon, uh, a night in an, this kind of inn 
normally cost about a 30-second of a denarii. So two silver coins would have been equivalent to about a room at the inn for two months. He takes care of this guy. Take an average inn today, multiply it by 60, the, the, the nightly rate, and, and that's the kind of sacrifice that the Samaritan made. And then he does something more than that. He just leaves him an open card. And he says, listen, wh- whatever expenses he has beyond just st- the price of staying here, take care of them, I'll reimburse you. I mean, wow. This guy is the personification of grace, of going above and beyond, going the second mile. And he pledges that he's going to come back and take care of any cost that the innkeeper incurs. Jesus' question is, who was a neighbor? Now remember, the lawyer asked what question. He said, who is my neighbor? This is important to understand the difference. The, 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 the lawyer wanted an identity. He wanted a list. Jesus defines being a neighbor as a way of living, as an action, as a, as a verb, as a style, as a manner of living. That he was a neighbor to the man who was beaten because of what he did. Who was my neighbor? Who was a neighbor to the man? Obviously, the question that they couldn't even bring, that they could not even utter the words. The Samaritan. Okay. So with this incredible story comes an incredible twist. You ready for the twist? I can tell. I can tell. You've all got your coats on. You're just anticipating. The insane twist is this. Jesus says to him at the end of the story, who's my neighbor? Yes, we know the Samaritan was my neighbor. And he says, go and do likewise. What? Mark chapter 12. The second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other like him. But to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's saying a lot. We don't fully understand that. They have a lot of burnt offerings and sacrifices. The lawyer understood that. He wasn't saying that sacrifices and offerings didn't matter. He was saying that loving your neighbor matters more than even those. Here's the hard truth. If I think about it, we are no better than the priest and the Levite. Okay, I'll make it personal. I am no better than the priest and the Levite. If, if I put myself in the same hypothetical situation of the story that Jesus told, and there's a man, and I'm going on a long, precarious journey, and I don't know the situation of the man, and I'm not sure his, his background, I am not sure that I would react in the same way that the Samaritan did. I do love God, but there are times when I don't act like it. I love God with all my heart. With my mind, with my soul, with my strength. But there are times when I fall way short. There are times when I struggle just to remember to read his word. There are times when I struggle just to, to talk to him. And the command is not just to read his word and to talk to him. Those aren't bad things, but... 
The command is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I mean, when I think of this standard that's in the law that Jesus said, that the rabbi said, that the lawyer said, I realize how far I have to go. When I think of the second commandment, I don't fare much better. I mean, I love people. I'm in ministry. I love people sometimes when they don't aggravate me, when they don't annoy me. And if I'm honest, I love people who are, are pretty much like me and who believe like me and talk like me and think like me. And even amongst those, even among that small segment of people, I'm not always perfect at it. The people I love most in the world, my wife and my children, there are times when I certainly would be guilty of not having loved them with the same love that I love myself. I have I have two actual neighbors living on each side of me. And and I talk to one on occasion and the other I've only talked to twice in the year I've lived there. And so when I think about do I really love my neighbor, my actual literal neighbors, ignoring the whole ramifications of what Jesus just taught, I realize I fall way short. One step further, it's, it's possible to say, it's possible to say because I've lived it, that in 40 years I have never loved anyone Nearly as close as I love myself. I don't think about other people the way I think about myself. I don't provide for other people the way I provide about myself. To love your neighbor? I mean, ignoring all of the debate and just coming down to the first and second commandment? Here it is. I don't measure up. And I hope I hope a Sunday night audience is honest enough to go, yeah, me either. That's a problem. Because those are the two most important ones, even under great conviction. Even if I believe that with all my heart, the ability to do it and to carry it out, I'm not sure if I have it. Now, maybe I can look back. Over the time I've been a Christian and say, well, I'm certainly much better than I was. But that's like saying, on a journey from here to the next galaxy over, I've moved about six inches. You get it? You know what I'm saying? When we consider the standard demanded by the law and the standard demanded by love as Jesus told it, I think the point is this. It all goes back to the man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does it say in the law? I can almost see a smile on his face. And the lawyer is so prideful and arrogant and full of hubris. He knows the commands. 
And he wants to get into a debate with Jesus. If the lawyer's smart, he'll realize that he falls way short of the Samaritan standard. And that he doesn't measure up either. And so that's the point. That we all need grace. That we all are unable and incompetent to get to eternal life on our own. It's just not possible. Which is why Jesus, who kept the first and the second command perfectly, came. Not so that he could get to heaven, although he had certainly earned the right, but so that we could get to heaven. Because we, can, we never, ever could. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story about how for fall we fall. How far we fall in the standard that God requires. And if you're trying to do enough to get to heaven, you're thinking about it all wrong. Now, when you're in Jesus Christ, when you've been buried in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, when you confess his name Lord as Lord and you begin to walk in the light, your life should be motivated by his grace that he was given to you. And each and every one of us should be able to say, I fell way short of the standard. I still do to this day. But as Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So may we stop trying to think like the lawyer and try to earn it. And may we get this one thing to take away, and that is this. May we live and give grace lavishly. Before we pick on priests and Levites, may we take a hard, long look at ourselves. May we realize that we were all in their position, be it lawyer or Pharisee or rabbi or priest. It's just impossible to do enough to get there, which is why we all need grace. I want to give you a section of scripture from Romans chapter 3. I do hope you'll turn there. I know it's not in the story, but I'd like to end here. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 24. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law. Catch this. A righteousness from God Apart from the law, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, praise God, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace that came through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We all are as helpless 
as the people in the story. And all of us need the same Savior, Jesus the Christ. And tonight, if you do not know him, I'd love to tell you about him. If you have not begun your journey with him, I don't know what keeps you from starting. You say, well, I'm not good enough. That's exactly right. You never will be. None of us are. We all fall short. All of us miss the mark. But verse 24 says, and all of us are justified freely by his grace. It's up to you whether or not you're going to accept the gift. Uh, Imagine the man being beaten and left half dead on the side of the road. And the Samaritan comes to him wanting to give him healing and, and all of these gifts and taking him to the inn. And the man in shambles on the side of the road is like, no, no, I'm doing okay. I'm fine. Go ahead. How foolish. May we not be like that. All of us need the grace of Jesus. We need the grace of a rabbi who is willing to live perfectly, that he might die perfectly, that we might know the hope of resurrection. And if you're ready, if you're under the realization that you're not good enough, you're in the perfect place to receive the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And that grace can be yours tonight. If you need that, if you haven't yet partaken of the gift, I hope you'll come meet me down front tonight. Or if you're struggling in your walk with Jesus in your journey to understand grace and to know grace, let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Whatever need you might have, please join me down front if you have one. Together as we stand and sing.